Well, I think we'll get started. We're going to shift. I want to do some introduction. We're going to shift to James chapter 2. I sent this to Fred, and he sent it out. If you have this or have access to it, it will be really important. If not, make a note to yourself to go look at it after class. But uh, this is something I developed a while ago it, to integrate these two together. This is extremely important. We're at the high point of this series in Galatians and James. This is what you'll be tested on by God before you enter heaven. All right. Where are you going to start? What verse? Well, I want to go to James chapter 2, verse 14. And as you're getting that or turning to it or whatever you're doing, I want to remind you of what we studied in Galatians 3 through the beginning of chapter 4. The thesis that Paul defends to the Judaizers who are criticizing him and making and mocking really his free grace gospel is that we're justified by faith, not by works of the law. Remember, that that's just a phrase that he uses over and over and over again. And he tries to show the inferiority of the law to the doctrine or the belief or the premise of justification by faith. And uh, it's, I hope you can recall that and would agree, it's masterful. Those, those verses in chapter 3, in the very beginning of chapter 4, are the, the, I, I refer people to this a lot. It's one of the most succinct and clear explanations of the doctrine of justification in the Bible. Romans is a much longer uh, discourse on it, and that's wonderful too. But it's, it's very, very significant to have, have uh, that down and have it clearly understood and firmly in your doctrine and in your doctrinal hat, so that you can pull it out a lot, remember. But as we look at James, and I'm going to introduce it, and then we're going to read it, and then I want to talk about it, going to the slides and so on. James is a, an epistle written by the brother of Jesus, James. But James, James, throws, James, James throws us off. He throws us off balance. He, he challenges us. Because James says we're justified by faith plus works. We're justified by works. And he uses exactly the same word. The Greek word is dikao. He uses exactly the same word. He said, wait a minute. I'm confused. Well, I don't want you to be confused. When we get to the, when we finish the book of Galatians, we're going to study then the rest of the part of James. My argument will be, James is an epistle written about late AD 48, early 49, to show us what the justified life looks like. What James is trying to show is if you are justified by faith, what is your life going to look like? What is that life that's undergoing the process of sanctification? What will it what will be its characteristics? So James has to James has to settle this issue. But James, you're focusing a lot on what we do. Not who we are. You understand the difference? James focuses on what we do, not who we are. Justification defines who you are. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared righteous by the Father. That's who you are. And nothing can change that. James, and Paul does this too, but James is, is writing an entire epistle that helps us to understand what does that justified life looks like? But he has to settle this question. He has to deal with this issue. And so I'm now in verse 14 of chapter 2 of the book of James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says, if someone claims, if someone argues that he has faith but does not have works? So, what, what is James doing? He's posing a question. He's posing a situation. He's pretending as if he is in a situation, let's say a synagogue, where that synagogue is hearing the gospel preached, and that, that, that preacher, that synagogue teacher, is discussing and defending justification by faith. And somebody stands up and says, wait a minute, teacher. I want to separate the two. You have faith. I have works. Faith and works are separate. 
Someone claims he has faith, but doesn't have works. Let's be real cynical and real crash. I've got fire insurance, and that's all that matters. If I put it that way, do you know what I mean by that? I've come to faith in Christ. That's all that matters. doesn't matter how I live the rest of my life. It doesn't matter what I do. All that matters is that I put my faith in Christ. That's what James is addressing. Are you with me? You can put it by the objector saying, I want to theologically separate faith and works. Or the real cynical, crass skeptic saying, I have faith, but it doesn't matter how I live my life. It doesn't matter what I do. And so James has to address this because the argument of his book is what does a justified life look, look like? So this is what he goes. Can that faith, let, let's embellish it just a little bit, can that kind of faith save him? Is that the kind of faith that Jesus is interested in? Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. He comes to faith in Christ after the resurrection. He is not a part of Christ's disciple. 12, he is antagonistic of his brother. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Mark says, James thought his brother was crazy. He didn't want anything to do with it. But James comes to faith and becomes extremely important in the early church. And so his, his question is quite prominent, and it's very prominent for a Jewish person, as well as a Gentile person to come. Does that kind of faith, the faith that separates belief and works, is that kind of the faith that Jesus is talking about to bring salvation? So these are two really crucial questions. So here is his first thesis. He will defend two. His first thesis is that kind of faith is a dead faith. That kind of faith is an inoperative faith. Look what he says, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that particular term dead means meaningless, inoperative, useless, bankrupt. And so James is laying out what would have been a, a, a very, um, I guess I could say normal, a very normal situation in the ancient world. You have, and please note, a brother or sister, this is someone, if it's a Jewish person, this is someone in your synagogue. Or if it's in a Christian house church, which is what they were in those early years, it's a house church, and one of the brothers and sisters comes into the church, comes into the synagogue, poorly clothed, does not have enough food to eat, and you look at them and put your arm around them and say, Shalom, brother and sister. Go in peace. Be warm and be filled. And walk out of the building. Got the picture? For James, that is absolutely inconceivable that you would do that. For you do not help meet that physical need, which is so good, of a brother and sister, a brother and sister of yours in the faith, that you would do nothing to help them do nothing to meet that need. For James, that is a dead faith. And again, the, the word dead means inoperative. It's, it's, it's useless. That is not the faith that Jesus is talking about. That's not the saving faith that he represented and offered. And it certainly isn't the faith that Paul's talking about in terms of the book of Galatians, you're going to see in chapters 5 and 6. So, are you with me? Do you understand what James is doing? So his first thesis is, faith without works is a dead faith. It's an inoperative, useless faith. It's a faith that in Paul, excuse me, in James's mind is absolutely inconceivable. That a brother or sister has a physical need. You have the ability to meet that need. You put your arms out, shalom brother, and walk away. That's inconceivable. That's a dead, useless, inoperative faith. That is not the faith that my brother Jesus represented. Then he proposes a second thesis. It starts in verse 18. But someone will say, and, and again, it's parallel with what's in verse 14. It's another objector. 
It's another person saying, okay, no, wait a minute. The first objection wanted to separate faith and works. You can have faith, you don't need works. You can have faith, you don't have to do anything righteous. All that matters is faith, everything else is irrelevant. And so there's another objective sentence. He says, you have faith, I have works. And if you're following, it's, it's simple. But this objector is saying, well, there's people of faith who trust God, and there are people who do good things. I want to separate the two. Now, in one sense, that's kind of a ridiculous claim to make. But in a way, in a way, it isn't. And so James is just proposing somebody who I don't particularly care about a relationship with God. I'm not particularly interested in any kind of a in any kind of a faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross and his resurrection. But I want to be a good person. I want to do good work. So I'm going to help old ladies across the street. I'm going to put blind people, put them in my arm, walk them across the street. I'm going to help little kids who don't. That's, that, I separate the two. Here's what James says about that. Show me your faith apart from your works. You want to separate the two. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and, and I think you might recognize that. That's from the Shema. That's from Deuteronomy 6.4. That's from the heart of Jewish theology. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And what do you do with that? You put it in your heart. You teach it to your kids, etc. You love the Lord your God. So he's he appealing to that. Because remember, well, you didn't get this yet. But James will tell us when he begins his book, he's writing, he's writing to Jewish people in A.D. 48 or 49. So when he quotes God, they know exactly what he means. You believe in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You do well. Even the demon believe that. And shudder. So his second thesis is faith without works is the faith of demons. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to tell you right now is Satan an atheist? No. No. He definitely knows who God is. Yeah. Are the demons atheists? No. Do you, do you remember when you read the Gospels, there are several different accounts and scenarios that happen. But in one account, a whole bunch of demons are in a man in a, in a actually two men, but in a cemetery on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and they say, are you here to judge us this day, O son of man? <laughs> That's a statement of faith. They knew who Jesus is. They know the power Jesus has over them. Listen, I can guarantee you this, and I die for this proposition. No demon. No, Satan is ever an atheist. They believe God, but is that saving faith? No. Everything about their being is evil. So James is making an in-your-face statement. You believe? Good. That's what the demons believe. Demons believe in God. They believe God is one. But they shudder. And that's a strong Greek word there, shudder. I mean, that's a great way to translate. They're terrified. I mean, they are, when I was a little kid, they're shaking in their boots. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, but that's kind of the sense of this. So James has made two really in-your-face declarations about the relationship of faith and work. Faith Without work is an inoperative, useless, dead faith. Faith without works is the faith of demons. They believe in God. So that's an unsaving faith, right? They believe, but it's not a believing faith. And it's manifested by how they live. Now let's explore this, because James gave us an illustration in the first thesis, faith without works is dead, inoperative, useless. An inconceivable situation. Somebody in your fellowship comes in, has a real physical need, and you put your arm around, shalom, and walk away. James said, I can't, I can't imagine you would do that. The second one, faith without works is the faith of demons. So he has to show something, though, 
because to a degree, he's been conceptual. Now he has to illustrate it. Now he has to prove it. This is brilliant. He brings to the witness stand, Abram. How can he show, and if you're a Jew, as the first recipients of James's letter were Jewish, you bring up Abraham, they know exactly who he's going to be. He's the father of the Jewish people. He's the Hebrew, the first Hebrew. He is the one that God gave that covenant of land, season, blessing. So James is going to bring him in, because look what he says. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Great word. Useless. So he brings Abram. Now, I have written something on the board. I want to get to that in a minute. But I want to read this. Was not Abraham, our father, justified? By works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active, was working along with his works. And his faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now, I'll stop there for a minute before we go on to the rest of the part of this chapter. So, the Apostle James, brother of Jesus, came to Jesus' faith after the resurrection, before regarded his brother as a lunatic, but comes to faith, becomes a key leader in the Jerusalem church. He brings Abraham to the witness stand. But for us to grasp the power of what James is doing here. We have to focus on three verbs. And that's what I've done up here. What he's trying to do, now I'm going to go to the board to you guys online. Um, I think you can see a little bit of it, but I'm going to do my best to explain it as we go through it. Abraham and James chapter 2. What James is doing is connecting Genesis 15, 6 where we just, he quotes it, Abraham believed God was credited him as righteousness. He's justified. With Genesis 22, when he offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. So he's taking two events in Abram's life. The event in Abram's life where God declares him righteous, and then when he offers Isaac to the Lord, or he's willing to offer Isaac to the Lord in Mount, on Mount Moriah. Faith Works. His faith produced this. And to show that linkage, and this is what I've done, three bullets here. James says he believed God and was considered uh, righteous. God declares him righteous. Here's what Abraham is justified. He says his faith and works are working together. They're not opposed. They're not separated, as these two objectors said. They are working together. The Greek word, the Greek phrase there is they are integrated and inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. They work together. This comes first, but this natural result in my life, in your life, in Abraham's life. And then he says, in addition, that his Faith is completed. The Greek word there, um, no, I don't know, I, I maybe won't write that up, that wouldn't mean anything to you anyway, but the Greek word he uses is a really great word, teleon. In other words, the Greeks used to talk of a telos, the end. Here's its end, here's its purpose, here's its goal. Faith has a goal. What is that goal? Works. That you now do, not works to merit salvation, but works that manifest salvation, demonstrate salvation. They're inextricably linked. So the Greek word he uses, teleon. The, the, the works that Abraham did in Genesis 22 is reaching the goal God had for it here. For you and me, you come to faith in Jesus Christ. God is beginning to transform. He has a goal for you. You're going to make an impact for him. You're going to be his salt light. That's a teleon Greek word. That is the purpose for which God saved you. So that you will now be his representative among others. 
And then thirdly, so neat. Thirdly, James says, this was fulfilled here. He says, Genesis 15, 6, the scripture was fulfilled when Abraham was willing to offer Isaac back to the Lord Jesus, Lord God, the mountain Moriah. And so what James has done here, as a matter of fact, what James does is he shows us what, what Jesus talks about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 17, what Paul talks about in Galatians 5 and 6, and Romans 12, 13, and 14, that this leads to this. <clears throat> that you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your faith now will work together with your desire to love people, to help people, to care for people, to have compassion on people. And all of the things that are a part of representing Jesus Christ as salt and light, they work together. They're not opposed. They're not separated. They work together. They're inextricably linked. Second, they, they reach the goal God has for us. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace through faith you're saved. Not a works as I mentioned both. That we might be what? God's workmanship. He has saved us to do the good works that he wants us to do. But you can't have this without this, because no one is justified by this. Argument of Galatians 3. This is where you're justified. This will be the consequence. And then that crucial word, which is so important in Abram's life, on understanding what happens in all of our lives, then what happens here is fulfilled here. We're a different person. We're in that process of transformation. And so... Uh, everything about our life starts to change. We're reaching the teleon, the telos, the end, the purpose that God has for us. And so to get this, I mean, and to, when I mean get, I mean to understand this, is to understand one of the great doctrines of the New Testament. That justification by faith leads to a life of transformation. Be a little slow before you went into all that. I'm faith, sorry, I didn't let you ask a question. I'm sorry. Faith and belief are two different things. They interchange words here a little bit. The demons have a belief, they know, but they don't have faith. I think we have to be real clear on those two things, right? Because, you know, it talks right here where it says, you have faith in the actions and it was made complete. And then the scripture says it's fulfilled when God believed. They, they interchange faith and belief there where it gets a hair of confusion for smoking. <laughs> well, you, you're right uh, in, in, in the sense that the, the matter of faith is an act on our part, our mind, our heart, our soul where the object of our faith, I'll now talk the way Paul would talk, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. It's not say, well, I believe in God, now I'm saved. That, no, that's not it. Faith has a content to it. And it's, it's what Jesus did for me. And I believe that, and that's appropriated to my life in, in, in the work of justification. Belief is I believe something to be true, but that doesn't mean my heart and my mind and my soul, I'm embracing this as the solution to the problem that caused me to put my faith in Christ. It's just the demon believes there's a God, just like you believe there's a God. A, a person can say, I believe in God and not be in heaven. Would you agree with that? A person can say, I believe in God, and it won't be in heaven. Because faith means you're responding with your heart, soul, and mind to a, a, a matter of content about that object in which you're putting your faith. I'm being a little technical, but I'm, I'm answering your question, or at least I'm trying to expound a little bit on your question. Because, and you are right there, Bill, that's really, really important. In verse 19, the demons believe. Well, what, what did they believe? They believe there's a God. But they are not putting their faith in Jesus, and that, that would be a theological question, are they incapable of doing that, but that's not the point. But the demons believe, they believe there's a God. 
And their response to that is they shudder. They're trembling in their boots because they know that God controls their destiny. They're going to be in the lake of fire. Belief is cerebral, but when you have faith, it's more than the soul and the heart. Well, that's what I mean. That's why I said heart, soul, and mind. I mean, you, you are coming to terms with the claims of Jesus, and you're understanding your need, which is sin, and you are believing that his death, burial, and resurrection took care of that problem. So that's, that's part of that content, that belief. A five-year-old can believe that. A 95-year-old can believe it. you got to believe the same thing. There, but the people can say, well, I believe in God. And to me, that's where we are today in, in, uh, in our very pluralistic culture. We have a lot of people who will say, I believe in God or I believe in a God, and, uh, which is I, I'm fine. I'm really glad to hear you say that. You know, I think atheism is a bankrupt system. I don't believe it anyway. But now tell me, what do you mean by that? What is the content of your belief? And um, I won't maybe bore you. I'm going to say it. A uh, very important Christian sociologist, his name is Christian Smith, has written a three-volume uh, book. Uh, it's extremely valuable. Um, but he argues that the typical Christian, and he says that very broadly in America, their view of God is a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. You got to take that apart. Because he says the challenge today is our churches are not teaching sound doctrine, and our churches therefore are promoting a very superficial, shallow view of God. And people really, really don't believe what the Bible says about God. Their God is a moralistic God who, yes, there are certain standards. I kind of like the Ten Commandments. Nice set of standards, they would say. Therapeutic. God's my therapist, not my Lord. And he's deistic. Deistic goes back to the 18th century, but deism is the idea that there is a God who created everything, but he's, he's absent. He's an absentee landlord. He's not involved directly. I just call upon him when I need him. He's my therapist. And if that's your view of God, you are not believing in the God of the Bible. Because God is not a moralistic, therapeutic deist. That's not God. He's the sovereign Lord of this universe. And he sent his son to die for you to solve your problem. He's not your therapist. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. Now, I went down a bunny trail there. But this is what James is getting at. You can believe in God. You can believe in a God. That's not with Abraham. That's not what my brother taught. It is not enough to say, I believe in God. The demons believe that. And so James is zeroing in on what his brother taught. And now, are, are any other questions or online? Any questions? Everybody with me? What I really mean is everybody with James. Okay, he's brought Abraham to the, Abraham to the witness stand. And by the way, would you notice something, too, at the end of verse 23? This is a, just a marvelous statement. But in addition to God declaring Abram righteous, he said, Abram's my friend. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> but remember something Jesus Christ said in the upper room. I now call you friend. Remember that? In the upper room. Moses was called a friend of God. Abraham's called a friend of God. You and I, this side of the cross, we put our faith in Jesus. We're a friend of God. That's that level of intimacy we can enjoy. It's really quite powerful, actually. But again, all James is focusing on is the inextricable linkage between a faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work, and the resultant life. So you see, I'm in verse 24 now, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the key word is alone. 
second example. Now, if you were going to call a second person to the witness stand from the Old Testament, he brought Abraham. If I were writing this, I know you're glad I didn't because I hardly write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But if I were writing this, I'd have probably chosen, how about Moses, the lawgiver, the deliverer from slavery? Doesn't choose him. I know David, King David, the greatest king of Israel, the model for all the other kings, doesn't choose. Okay, I want to be gender neutral here. I'll choose Ruth, the great Moabite, who so was aligned with her mother-in-law Naomi that she leaves her home, Moab, and goes to Bethlehem. And she marries Boaz, the Goel of her family, the kinsman redeemer for her family. And her son is the grandfather of King David. But who does he choose? A prostitute from Jericho, Rahab. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James, again, remember his first readers with this were Jewish people, very early decades of the church. They would know this story. It was a key element under the conquest of Joshua. Joshua was looking at that walled city of Jericho after across the Jordan River, and he says, how are we ever going to conquer that? And the commander of the Lord's armies, says, Theophany, Jesus Christ, his pre-incarnate existence comes up and tells him the battle plan. And so Joshua sends spies, and they get into the, into the city's walls, and Rahab hides them. Do you know what? You go back and read that. Abraham, excuse me, Rahab had heard all of the stories of the Exodus. She heard of the stories of those ten plagues that destroyed Egypt. She heard of the wilderness wonders and how God had helped defeat the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Edomites. And then those kings on the very west, east side of the Jordan River. And she believed. As a matter of fact, they saved her life, as you know. And then she joined that group of Israelis in the conquest. And she married a Jewish man named Solomon. And if you go to the genealogy of Jesus to Matthew chapter 1, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. It's one of the four women listed. And so all he's doing, he, James, is doing is bringing... Rahab to the witness Her faith, she believed what she was hearing about Yahweh Elohim, and that led to her hiding the two spies who would have been killed if the Jericho people of Jericho had found them. She hid them. He's saying that faith that justifies led to what she did in hiding the spy. I don't know about you, but I'll say that one more time. If I were going to choose an example from the Old Testament, I'm not sure I'd choose her. I mean, there are lots of others I'd have chosen. Never, but Rabbit, does that not also show the depths of God's grace? If anybody in that town of Jericho, that walled city that God will destroy as they march around, all that stuff, is, is, is Rahab. But she believed. She put her faith in this God. And God blessed her in such an incredible, not only sparing her life, and by the way, the life of her family as well, counselors, but also she married a Jewish boy. And she's so privileged she's in the line of the Messiah. That's God's grace. But James is just showing you can't have faith alone. The faith that justifies is the faith of the changed life. And so he therefore concludes. And notice verse 26, it's an, it's an analogy. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, well, everybody knows that. Death is a separation of body and spirit. So also faith apart from works is dead. You can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. And so the analogy, as, as the body and the spirit 
When they separate, they're dead. So faith and works separated is dead, useless, inoperative. So James has just, um, at least I said, I hope you would agree, James has masterfully, brilliantly, both in his teaching, faith without works is dead, faith without works is the faith of demons, and used two illustrations. And you sit back and say, I'm convinced. You can't have one without the other. I like James. He tells about positive life in just a few sentences. Anybody can understand. I read a chapter of James every day. Very important. Especially his, uh, his account of the mechanics of temptation. In chapter 2, read that. And that's temptation. That's actually so, chapter one. So, so, it's actually chapter one, but you know. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, it's so graphically, simply described, and it's so it's perfect. And all, it seems like your whole letter is like, and it's written with his heart. But he says, uh, I think I count them right because my brother, they're my brothers. Thirteen times he mentions that. And he doesn't have to, you know, he puts that in in this short letter. So to me, that's really a book. If a guy's going to read a book or a letter to live your life by, it's only a few pages. It's perfect. It's one of the good ones. We're going to study that later on in depth, I promise. Oh, okay. (laughs) Now, before we go to the the copy of the PowerPoint slides and stuff, and Glenn's going to put them up for the guys that are online. Are you, do you understand what we've done, this little exposition of James 2, 14 through the end, as, as well as some of the other things that I've done up here? Does that make sense? Yep. Because yeah. remember, I'm not going to let you into heaven unless you can explain this to me. Aren't you glad I don't have any authority over how you get to heaven? In, in reality, James and Paul are both exasperated by a situation that they've confronted. Exactly. The, Paul with the Galatians and James with the early church in Jerusalem. Just he's, he's obviously upset. This is a diatribe. He's saying, yeah. what the are you people yeah. thinking? Yeah. And he may even have used that word which you left out. <laughs> but, <laughs> and that's a good way to put it. They're both exasperated by the situation they're facing. Paul with the Judaizers, Galatia and all that stuff, and James, who's in Jerusalem, as he's dealing with the, the Pharisaic legalistic Jews who are struggling with what it means to be a Christian. You, you and I, we've talked about this briefly before, but you and I have no, no real understanding of how difficult it was for a Jewish person to convert to Christianity. They did it. All the early church with Jews, all of them. Jesus was Jew, but Yet it, it was profound for them. And James is just helping them to think through and apply the transformation that's going on in their lives. All right. And I don't hear any other questions. So if, if we'll go to the chart, that would be great. Now, uh, you know, there's another chart. That's not the right one. No, it's not the right one. It's, it's the other one. It's called the head, the head of it. The land is faith and work, Paul and James. One I sent out two weeks ago. Key terms. Yeah, it should have that. I think he's he's finding it. But if uh, all of you, some of you maybe already have it, but uh, Glenn will find it for us. But I'm on page one. There's just a cover, faith and work, page one. Paul and James on key terms. Now, if you'll notice, I have a vertical line in the middle. How is James and Paul defining faith? How's James and Paul defining works? Both James and Paul would agree that faith is trust and obedience to Jesus. It's trust in the obedience to Jesus. That's what faith is. It's the, it's the saving faith, and then it's the sustaining faith. We are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith. Our trust and dependence on the Lord Jesus is absolutely central for both. However, James and Paul are approaching the term works with a little bit of a different nuance to it. 
For Paul works are outward acts of ritual and adherence to the law to merit God's favor. That's how he's using it in the book of Galatians. We are not justified by works of the law, but by faith. He is talking about outward acts of ritual and adherence to the law to merit God's favor. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about keeping the Sabbath. He's talking about observing the feast days. He's talking about observing kosher food laws. That's what Paul means by work. He says we're not justified by works. That's what he means. But James means work, as we just studied, as those spontaneous acts of love energized by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the same thing John in John chapter 15, it's the same thing that Jesus talks about when in that when he's talking about the vine and the branches. That the vine is Jesus. We are his branches. And the inextricable linkage of the two, you can do nothing without me. And the same thing Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. That's our fullest account of the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he says that, you know, you will know them by their works. You, you, will, you will observe how a person lives, and that will tell you about their relationship with me. And so what James is saying is, I'm not talking about the ritualistic observances of legalistic Judaism. I'm talking about those spontaneous acts of love and obedience to Jesus that's manifested as you live your life. And that's why if somebody in your fellowship or your church comes up, they, they don't have any clothes, they don't have enough to eat, what are you going to do? You're going to help meet that need. You're not going to put your arm around Shalom and walk away. The example James is. It's a spontaneous act of love. Jesus says, he, well, he says this over and over again, as you know, and, and he manifested and did it in how he lived his life, in his public ministry. His works validated his words. That should be how you and I live. Our works will validate what we say. I live for Jesus. Okay, I want to see. Paul says this. You want to know how to pull this off? Follow me around. He says that to Philippians in, in chapter 4, verse 9. You want to know how Paul's a Christian I follow around? Would you ever say that to somebody? I would never say that to somebody. You want to know how Paul's a Christian I follow me? I wouldn't know. Don't follow me. Please don't do that. But yet I raised two kids. And you know what? Every single day when they're grown, they had four eyes on me. Two to Jonathan, two to They're watching everything they do. So what James is saying, he said, oh, okay. So turn to the next page. How do James and Paul define justification? Now, on the slide, and if you have it in front of you or make a note of it, you'll notice I underlined a key term. For Paul, it's the term judicial. For James, it's the term declarative. When Paul says dikaiao, which is the Greek word for justification, it's a sovereign judicial act in which God, apart from human works, declares the sinner innocent and righteous. That's how Paul understands justification. God, the judge of the universe, declares us righteous because we put our faith in his son. How does James use? For James, justification is used in a declarative sense, in that a believer's righteousness is demonstrated by his actions. It's the conduct expected of a disciple. That's what Jesus says. And so James, James, in effect, is using it the way his brother talked about it. Paul is talking about it from the judicial sense of what the father did when we put our faith in his son. They are not opposites. They don't contradict one another. They complement one another. Because for you and me, you come, this is like with Abraham here, and then you can put it this way. This is the judicial act of God in Abraham's life. This is a declarative act in Abraham as he fulfilled this. As this reaches its teleon, its goal in his willing stop for Isaac. The same thing. All right. We have two pages done. A lot more to go. Are you following me? I have a so the quiz next week, I'm going to ask, what are the two words that give us the key difference of how Paul and James look at justification? You will say, Paul, it's judicial. 
And you will say, for James, it's declared. I'm just so giving are, you a hand. So how are they treated when they die? That's right. If they went like that. <laughs> all right, now, I don't know if we're going to get through all this, but go to the third page. What I've done here is I've itemized a series of observations from James. Now, and from here on out, I'm just going to exclusively focus on James. Number one, it is absolutely vital to understand that James stresses not that works must be added to faith, but that faith includes or results in works. That's a big difference, because what is Paul saying? You guys who are Judaizers are saying your works are added to your faith. You have faith that you must be circumcising your boys. You must keep the Sabbath. See, that's not what James is saying. It includes. These are inextricably linked together. They're organically connected. The Judaizers are saying you got to add to your faith, and Paul destroys that, Galatians 3. Number two, James uses a diatribe style because of the false teachers who are trying to separate faith and good works, which is what the Judaizers were doing. Number three, James uses works in a positive sense to refer to the deeds of love and mercy that Christians do to fulfill the law of love, which he talks about in chapter two, right before he starts the discussion about justification. So the law of love, he'll call it the royal law of love. It's the law of our king, Jesus, to love, love one another, he says. This is that positive, this is what it looks like. Jesus says, love one another. James saying, this is what my brother meant by this. You're judicially righteous, now you would declaratively live it. They're linked. You don't add the works to your faith. Your faith produces the work. Your faith natural result. Your faith will result in the transformed life that begins to look like what love looks like in your relationship with people. Yeah, Jim. Yes, sir. In my head, it's a causal effect. It's a result of your faith. Yeah, yeah. That's that's right. the one leads to the other. That yes. That's right. And James therefore stands in that long biblical tradition that connects faith with loving acts of mercy. And I give you some quotations from the book of Isaiah, as well as what Jesus taught and what First John taught. Jesus taught Matthew 25. You know, it's really pleasing to me when I see you give a drink of water to someone. It's really pleasing to me when I, when I see you give some food to somebody that's hungry. It really pleases me to see you go visit somebody in prison. Remember those three examples Jesus uses? That's what he's talking about. It's, it's, it's his law. You see it back in Isaiah. You see it in, in the law. You see it in Leviticus. You, when, you, when you harvest your wheat, don't pick up every, leave some along the edge, leave some of the shocks of wheat. For who? For the poor. As an act of mercy, an act of love. That was part of the tradition of Judaism. James is connecting the two. Justification by faith is going to lead to these acts of love and mercy. Next. Now, this is probably self-evident, but I think it needs to be stated nonetheless. The contrast is not between faith and works, but faith that has works and faith that does not. He's not setting up the false, I'm justified by faith, justified, no. He's justifying, he's setting up the contrast between a faith that has these works, the love and mercy that naturally results through the transformation, and a faith that does not. John does the same thing in 1 John. If you say, I love Jesus, but you hate your brother, James says, or excuse me, John says, I'm not sure you have faith. That's a very interface comment. But John's saying the same thing in 1 John. And then next, James challenges the objector. Remember that false objector who stands up? Verse 18, he is not simply challenging him to give evidence of his faith. He's suggesting that the faith of the objector is not really faith at all. Genuine faith must be on 
must go beyond the intellect to the will. To me, now I know I wrote that, and I don't mean to exalt what I write, but to me, that is really important. Genuine faith is not just a matter of the head, the intellect. It's a matter of the heart. An old Baptist preacher used to say that 18 inches difference makes all the difference in the world. Because the will is this, it's our heart. And it's, 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 as we intellectually understand, I'm a sinner, understand what Jesus has done for me, his death, burial, and resurrection, I appropriate that by faith. It's also an act of my will. It's intentional. My heart. My heart's and mind are involved in that. And that is what produces justification and the process of sanctification. <clears throat> As with the Old Testament, almost done here. We'll see, but almost done. As with the Old Testament, real faith is a working faith that pleases the Lord. Honestly, men, when you say, I know you've done this, when you read and study the Old Testament, whether you're in the law or in the narratives or in the prophets, this is what they're talking about. A working faith. Faith is not a working faith. Faith is not a word, it doesn't save, it doesn't profit, it's dead, and it does not justify. They're all the verses in chapter 2 of, of James. James is talking about a working, a living faith. Justification leads to the works of sanctification. The judicial act of justification leads to the declarative works of justification. We're almost done. Verse 7, all right, no, verse 7, the next one. Abraham, in verse 22 of James, is a powerful example of this active declarative faith. And I give you the Greek words there. His actions worked with, worked together. Synergy. We got a word synergism from that. Synergy. It was strengthened and deepened by the successful trials of life. Such actions bring faith to maturity. Complete it. Teleon. The telos God has. Bring to maturity. Abraham, faith is mature, evidencing his justification. Justification in the judicial sense. Justification in the declarative sense. It's masterful how James brings that up. And as I as I said and up here, Genesis 15, 6 is fulfilled in Genesis 22. That's what Paul, that's what James argues in verse 23. He wants to show the connection between these old, two Old Testament passages in, in Abraham's life. And I when I first studied this many, many years ago, oh my goodness. Now I really understand. In evangelical language, when was Abraham saved? Here? When did Abraham demonstrate that he was saved? Here? The connection between the two. And James says you can't have one and not have the other. And so, in conclusion, we did do it. Whether you all got it or not, I don't know. We did do it. In verse 24, James writes, a man is not justified by faith, justified by works and not by faith alone. Key word there. The key term is alone. This term demonstrates that James has no intention of excluding faith from the process of justification, declarative sense of justification. Faith that has no consequences in life is a cheap, dead The Bible stress, stresses an activist faith, which is the theme of James. I, I teach a class at my church on, on, on Thursdays, and this Thursday, uh, tomorrow, we're going to deal with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're going to go through him as a champion of the church. And when you study Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is what, you know, if you, do you know him, does that yeah, mean? Sure. Okay. And Bonhoeffer yes. was executed by the Nazis in the last days of the war. But he, he would say over and over again, I am not for cheap grace. I'm not for just fire insurance. I stand for a faith that's active, faith that makes a difference. And he, he would refer to James a lot. Because if I'm a Christian, and he wrote a marvelous book on the church, too. It's, it's, a, it's a little thin thing, but a marvelous book on the church. And that's what he's calling for. 
because he was he was living in a in a time when you know you know the story of Hitler coming to power in 1933, and then as he tries to get the church to draw in and support everything he's doing, Martin Niemöller and others, uh, just and and be at the Bonhoeffer came part of there. No one can do that. And so you know Niemöller's thrown into jail for a while, and then and Bonhoeffer leaves and goes to the United States for a while, but decides I'm coming back, and he comes back and and gets involved in resisting the Nazis and so on, is a professor at a secret seminary that the Nazis didn't know about. So Bonhoeffer illustrates in a crisis period the kind of justification James talked about. And so it, it, it's the kind of dynamic that is the contradiction and, in, if I can even say, the indictment of a superficial, shallow, complacent Christianity. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. And and when you understand what James is saying, the power of what James is saying, I would often tell my students, I told my kids, which one do you want to be like? The complacent, apathetic, legalistic Pharisee who's comfortable or the believer who believes the gospel has been transformed by the gospel and wants others to be transformed? Which one do you want to be? James and Paul link together to give us the theology of salvation. And it's it's marvelous when you really understand it. What's the answer to calling the church today out of the self-existence? Because that's the answer. Because that's the answer. Because that's the answer. God has used many things in past history. He's used climactic weather events, droughts, famine. He's used war. He's used persecution. Well, he's used them throughout history. I mean, it isn't. I mean, I, you're you're right. They, they're part of the birth pains that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. But throughout history, that's how he's shaken the church out of its complacency. If revi- when you when you study the revivals of history, revival is always preceded by two things: massive, organized, thoroughgoing prayer, and crisis, and people turn back to God. Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? That was written for the Jewish people back then when they were thrown out of their land because of their sinfulness. Yet the words being cut by against I've got a quick on page nine of your notes. It's in this note packet that we started the study of these two. So it's not what I just sent you, but you might want to make a note. On page nine of your notes, I have a series of questions for Paul and James. How does Paul look at this in Ephesians 2? This is a series of questions for Paul. So that's all I want to say about that, as far as Gump said, 22 and a half years ago. Now, I hope you're with me. I hurried through this to some extent. But uh, I think what we'll maybe do next week is review a little bit of this real quickly. So if you have this handout or you have it on your phone or whatever, make sure you have it accessible. And, Glenn, if you could just have it accessible again for next week, thank you very much for showing that to us. I really appreciate it. But we'll review this again, and then we'll go back to Galatians, okay? And we'll, we'll get into finish Galatians 4, okay? Oh, this, what a great time to give you a thought paper assignment. That would be wasting my breath and depriving my body of oxygen, so I'm not going to do that. Father, thank you for James. Thank you for Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring both of these men to write what they wrote. Both Galatians and James were written very close to the same time in the late 40s, 48, 49 A.D., So they're very contemporary, and they're dealing with the challenges that the early church was facing. Thank you for the clarity of these passages. Thank you for the challenge these passages give to us. Lord, deliver us from being complacent, apathetic Christians. We are energized by the power of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel. We have the courage and fortitude to represent the gospel. And it's the same, Lord, to be the compassionate, merciful people you're calling us to be in helping people, in serving people, in serving our spouses, uh, our children, grandchildren, as well as neighbors. Lord, being your salt and light. That's what James is talking about. 
You can't separate the two. The one naturally leads to the other. The judicial justification leads to the declarative justification, to use the language that each one used. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us, coming to earth to die for us, being resurrected in power. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us and and empowering and enabling us. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for being our Father, our Heavenly Father, our Abba, that we can crawl up on your lap and tell you everything. And we know that you, the Trinitarian God, have a task for us, a telos, a goal, a purpose for us. May we fulfill that and represent you well. We trust each man to you. May each one be a strong man of faith who desires to represent you in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.